Okay, I consider it a privilege to speak in home church, especially when the microphone's on. And um, our good pastor, as I think probably most of you know, uh, who faithfully and rightly divides the word of truth so faithfully and uh, preaches the whole counsel of God. He and his good wife are in Greece or somewhere over there. And uh, they're going to be gone for a while celebrating their, their anniversary. And we wish them well. So be sure to pray for them in terms of their rest and safety and refreshment. Uh, which means I get to be, you know, the understudy, uh, the pinch hitter today. Now, the scripture says that uh, a prophet is not without honor save in his own country. And since the scripture is true, uh, this is my own country, I'm the prophet today, I guess I'm in trouble. Identity. Identity is an interesting thing. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away when Sarah and I were young Marys at that point in our 20s, we were part of a church in West Virginia and we were privileged to kind of be one of the sets of leaders that took a youth group all the way from the church in West Virginia to New York City, to Manhattan. And while we were there, our kids were involved in daily vacation Bible school with the partnering Bible church that was there and we did street evangelism in the evening, something I had never done before, certainly at that point, and that was an experience in itself. But while we were there, uh, pretty soon our co-workers, our new friends, our New Yorkers, they'd say, look at me and say, well, what are you? Hey, what am I? I'm a guy from Ohio, I live in West Virginia, I'm married to West Virginia. And uh, they said, no, 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 what, you know, what are you? And they're very conscious of this, and we kept getting this question, and finally one of them says, uh, uh, what are you? And I said, well, I'm an American. A classic Midwest kind of response. I'd honestly, when I grew up in the whole country of southern Ohio, I never thought about that. We had, we had no sense of that. We were just like there. We were, I was a Buckeye. You know, years later, I come to Michigan and I convert <laughs> to becoming a, a Spartan, and now I witness to the Wolverines. But I, I am, you know, I was just an American. And so I say in America, they say, no, no, I'm an Italian-American. She's a Greek-American. What are you? And I finally understood what they were talking about, because this is really my first trip at that point to a highly cosmopolitan, metropolitan area, 10, 12 million people in New York. There's every country of the world. There are people that live there, are represented and live in New York City metropolitan area. There are 600 languages spoken every day in New York City, it's that kind of place. You know, it's a world city. I'd never been there before. What are you? They are very conscious. Everybody is hyphenated. Everybody's from somewhere else, and they're very conscious of their identity, and that's what they're asking me. So finally, I started saying, well, I'm an Anglo-American. Didn't sound very you know, exciting, but I'm an Anglo-American. As far as we could tell, uh, our branch of the Rogers family tracks back to four brothers, we think, that came from England and settled in Maryland back in colonial times. And, Sarah began saying, well, I mean, her dad's very proud of his Scottish heritage because his mother had immigrated from Scotland. So Sarah is Scottish-American, and we started saying that, and that sort of satisfied our new friends. What are you? Pretty interesting. Never had confronted that before. Fast forward about 15 years, and uh, eventually we, we moved to West Michigan. And uh, my other life uh, at the university, and we began to do that kind of work, and I wasn't here very long before I figured out I had not moved to West Michigan, I had moved to Dutch West Michigan. <laughs> and that job required me to move around in the community much more than I do so now or need to. So I met a lot of Dutch business people who were very, very conscious of that. What are you? And uh, you know, it was part of who they are. In fact, it's so much in West Michigan, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much, you know? And we learned that pretty quickly. So one day I came home, I said, Sarah, we gotta change your name. She said, we're going to change your name? I said, yeah. I said, oh, Dr. Rogers, I'm going to be Dr. Van Rogersma. <laughs> and uh, with that, maybe then I'll be accepted in terms of identity and connection uh, with the people here in Dutch West Michigan. Again, where I grew up, we just weren't, we just weren't conscious of all that. We were Americans. And uh, that went on like that for a long, long time. And I, and I began to understand that you know, people are very conscious of their identity in that way. You know, you're conscious of your identity in other ways if the police officer stops you and walks up to your car and says, license and registration, please. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, it's experience. And, uh, 
What he wants to know is your identity. He wants to figure you out. Who are you? He wants to kind of put you in some kind of box that they understand. Uh, that can be non-threatening in, thankfully, mostly in a free society like ours. But in places like China, 1.8 billion people, 1.8 billion, we've got like 345 maybe here, million, they have 1.8 billion people in China. Uh, they have cameras everywhere. And more and more cameras, like you know, closed circuit cameras being added publicly in all public spaces in, Canada, in China uh, every day. Uh, now it's coupled with facial recognition technology. And if you've watched any crime shows, you know, where they have a face and they stick it on there and say, who is this guy? And then they're showing you all the faces going through trying to identify that because the software has a database like Interpol or what are those to finally identify this international crook. Well, who's in that database? Hopefully are crooks, you know, criminals, people with a record. In China, it's everybody. It's everybody. Now they're coupling it with artificial intelligence, you know, machine learning kinds of software technology to be able to eventually know and identify in a matter of moments every single one of those 1.8 billion. Why do they do that? Because they're a totalitarian autocratic society. They want control. So their identity becomes something of a tool that's quite threatening. Uh, identity can be something that um, uh, gets off, the, off base. We had a, a phishing experience, P-H-I-S-H, -S -H, you know that word, phishing, where our HR person innocently had received an email ostensibly from me, the president, you know, of SAT7USA, so, you know, Rex sent this. Rex wants the, all of our employees' social security numbers. Why would I want this? Uh, Rex wants that. Rex wants their salary. I, you know, have access. Rex wants something else about their W-2s or information, and she sends all that to this other email. So just like that, all, you know, it's a data breach. Uh, and we're not that big, but just like that, all of us are at risk as employees. And you know, she was innocent, she just didn't know. We've done kind of training since of that for all of us to learn more about phishing and how to recognize those kind of things when you get the addresses. Turns out only two of us really ultimately were affected by that, and Sarah and I were uh, among the two couples that were affected. Uh, so every year now, in about uh, early January, I get a PIN number, you know, personal identification number that's sent to us from the IRS, so that when we later file our taxes this, uh, this year, that year, uh, the IRS will know that I am, you know, the Rex Rogers who lives in Alto in Caledonia Township, not some other guy claiming to be that, and that uh, you know they won't file false, uh, false tax forms and, and maybe get a refund that I was expecting or hoping to get. And so, so you know, identity can identity theft we call that, and there's all kinds of things taking place. I'm, I'm sure this afternoon or right after this service, when you get into child protection, a necessary thing we didn't have that when I was a kid. You know, child protection. When I was a kid. It was hey, dad. Uh, but now it's a lot more sophisticated than that at the church. It has to be because there are all kinds of threats to our children, we know. And so one of the things you learn in the process of that is identity. Are, you know, is this really the parent? And how do you establish that this is the parent and the right person to whom you hand this precious child? So identity is something that uh, our society, our culture, there's lots of ways in which it's harmless. By the way, some of you have probably, my sister did this, send off 50 bucks and get one of those DNA tests, you know, and uh, you get in there and, and you find out, hey, this is pretty cool. You know, I'm 10% I'm Finnish. Well, good for you. You know, I don't know what that means. I do know that if you go up in the UP and you go in the Western UP and you go up in the Keweenaw Peninsula up there where Gitche Bible Camp is, there's lots of people who are more than 10% Finnish up there because that's Finnish Michigan up there. Like this is Dutch Michigan. People have a tendency to, you know, live in the same place. Identity, identity, it can be a big issue, and it can be harmless, but in our society, it has become something much bigger. In the last 20 years, I'll just go with this, uh, you know, identity is, I thought these would be interesting, identity gets back to the French word, and the Latin word, okay, fine, everything does. 1545, identity was first used, meaning oneness or sameness. Now, you know, how do you know this? 1545, that was the first time the word was used, but that's what the scholars say. 1953, the term identity crisis was first published or first used. You've heard that a lot. In the 70s, there was an absolute explosion of articles, and that has continued, books and articles, on identity since the 70s. And in 1987 is the term identity politics, which has become huge in the 2000s 
here in the United States because identity has become something far more than just physical representation. Our modern life, people are so caught up in our culture today trying to figure out who they are, what they are, where they're from, and they're looking for sources for that to, to, to authorize it or to, in some sense, uh, say this is who you are and you are somebody. And as we continue to look at this kind of thing, we're finding that there's a, a quest, as I said, for, for personal fulfillment, self-discovery. Uh, I quote Francis Schaeffer a lot because I read all his books. He made a big mark on me. But when, one of the things he said in the 1980s before he died in 1984 is that people eventually in America are committed to personal affluence, personal peace and affluence. If you, if you can guarantee somehow that people can have personal peace, however you define that, and affluence, however you define that, then they'll give up their security. <laughs> they'll give up their freedom. They'll do anything. And he was warning us about that. We've seen a lot of those kind of trends begin to happen in the United States in the 2000s. But this idea to, to advance, the internet, of course, has made this even more the case. And so they're looking for meaning, uh, the me and meaning, or the I and identity. And identity politics now comes along and pretty much is arguing that demography is destiny. I don't know if you've ever read much or paid attention to this. Um, uh, there'd be articles, to see this all the time, where someone is appointed to a government position. It could be local, could be national, especially national. And the first three sentences in the article is not about whether or not the person has credentials or experience to do the job to which they've now been appointed. It's about who they are ethnically or nationally or especially racially or sexually or in sexual orientation. That's what's being talked about today because that is the a priori in terms of our identity. So it gets emphasized, we say democracy of destiny, sex or gender, by the way, gender and sex are interchangeably used, but uh, they really do mean two different things. Sex, of course, means biology, uh, and the sex that God determines with which you, you're, you're born. Uh, gender is usually defined as social construction, and I don't mean that there aren't differences in men and women that have developed socially, but it goes beyond that today, of course, in terms of uh, people saying that gender is a fluid and gender identity is something along with sexual orientation. You get to choose for yourself and there are movements now to take uh, sex, male or female, off of birth certificates or off of passports as happened in some places in the United States already. And it's beginning to have a wreak havoc, of course, over into medical and health records and there's a lot of other problems with that. It goes way beyond morality we're talking about. We're talking about how you disrupt the very nature of a society. So again, identity politics, as it's called today, in a post-religion, sometimes we're talking about this being a post-Christian society. We'll just say post-religion, post-philosophy, uh, post-truth. By the way, when it says post-religion, it doesn't mean religion has completely gone away. It's just been religion, or especially Judeo-Christianity, is no longer the dominant influence determining values and direction in a society. It's not what's looked to as a fallback. It's not what's taught in the schools. It's not what is reinforced in public life. And I don't have to tell you very, very much about that. If, you're, if you've lived a while, you know it's really different from when you were a kid. And back when we were kids doesn't mean everything was perfect. Or doesn't mean we as a society were perfect. But there are a lot of things happening today in which Western civilization, especially the United States, seems to be systematically offloading and rejecting as quickly as it can the values and the principles that made the society and the civilization flourish and possible in the first place. And we're reaping the benefits of that. We'll talk about that in a moment. So post-religion, post-philosophy, post-truth, uh, post-modern world, that's where we go to find our source of belief and, and morality. So why is this problematic? Again, if identity is nothing more than, hey, I'm proud of my Dutch heritage, fine, there's nothing wrong with that, you know? And by the way, God is the one who determined our identities. You know, you can read in two or three places in scripture that we're not gonna take the time to look at today, that God established, the you know, Acts 17 established the boundaries of our habitation and who we are and placed us in that. God determined that I was gonna be American. God determined that I was gonna be a guy, you know? God determined that I was gonna be from Ohio with those parents. Uh, God blessed me with Christian parents. Some of you have that experience, some of you haven't. But God blessed us in the sense that we are who we are today, and he's the one who determined all that, but that's what's being offloaded with this idea of identity. And when I say rejection of God, if you were to talk to a lot of people today, I, I saw a survey this week that said that 81% uh, 
of Americans say they believe in God, 81%. Now what's remarkable about that is that is the lowest percentage since 1944 when Gallup first started asking that question. It's the lowest percentage. For years it has been 95, 96, 97%. It's now 81%, 81%. And then there are similar kinds of drops in percentages of those who believe in heaven, those who believe in hell, those who believe in something like what's sin. Sin is medicalized away. We don't even believe in sin anymore. And even worse, those that believe in objective truth. So there are a lot of people out there who still say, hey, I believe in God, even while they're living as if he doesn't exist. It's what you might call being like a practical agnostic. You know, you think, ah, God's out there. Uh, we can't really get to know him. It doesn't affect us. Uh, and really, we're not going to hear any more about that until we have our funeral, and then we'll, we'll go through the motions and, and say the right words, maybe. Maybe we'll have the funeral in church, maybe we won't, uh, because it doesn't mean anything in our everyday lives. But the, what they do reject in their pursuit of, of identity is, is the idea of truth. And uh, this you're seeing every day, every day. Uh, there's a further breakdown in our society in terms of believing in the idea of truth, the reality of truth, the fact, if that's a word anymore, of truth, uh, the ability to determine truth. And, and you have people like Oprah and a whole lot of others, not just to pick on her, but a lot of other online influencers and so on who they talk about your truth and my truth, or if they're going to say God at all, they'll talk about his God you know, you, he prayed to his God as opposed to God uh, or her God. Uh, and there's some maybe vague reference that way, but you don't hear that typically on major media uh, or any kind of reference on, on, on public discussion or discourse. And you don't hear it in our politicians much anymore. A few of them, but very few that even emphasize that. But truth, truth has gone out the window. You say, well, why does that much matter? Well, it much matters because everything begins to break down. If you wonder why our legal system is breaking down, it's because we don't believe in truth anymore. We don't believe there's a right and wrong. Well, if you don't believe there's a right and wrong, how can you hold this person accountable for what he did? You don't think it matters. And there are people, elected officials, who don't think it matters. They're not prosecuting even. And they're basing that decision on identity politics. Well, they're of a particular sex or race or gender orientation, so they don't need to be prosecuted and we'll just let it go. And it, it traces back to this idea of identity and the fact that thrown off as a culture, we've thrown off the idea of God and truth. And of course, the idea of humanity being made in the image of God. We're not made in the image of God. We're socially constructed. We're whatever we want to determine we are. Again, the emphasis today did not even put uh, male, female on a birth certificate to allow the child later, when they're old enough, like six, five, uh, they get to determine whether or not they're a boy or, or a girl. Uh, or some other manifestation hybrid of that. And there's 104 hybrids now, uh, ways of which you can check off who you are. And it's, it's endless uh, on things like Facebook and, and other social media kinds of checks like that. So in our culture, this therapeutic culture, we look inwards, create your own identity, it's socially constructed. We try to validate ourselves as self-identity. Well, what defines us? What makes us who we are? You know, in, in what should we locate our identity? It becomes a form of autonomous self-idolatry. We don't need God. Our identity is all cut up in that. Now, if, if that seems to be a lot of philosophic mumbo-jumbo, in a sense, kind of abstract, let me put it a little more practically before we shift gears and look at what God has to say. The practical application of that, and I've already mentioned some of that, but we're... We're, at, we're awash in, an ep, in, in epidemics now. We have, uh, we're told, a mental health crisis on a national scale at all ages, but especially among young people. And it's based upon their sense of, of loss that they don't know who they are, and it creates anxiety and fear and an inability to function. Some of you know the name Bill Maher. He is a uh, liberal and, and not any, in any way uh, religious. He's atheist uh, and can be crude, but he's also a critical thinker. It's interesting. 
he was interviewing uh, a young starlet a while back who seemingly in her early 20s had everything that the world think, thinks that you should have. She was a beautiful woman. Uh, she had talent. Uh, she was already known and recognized, had fame. Uh, she was making tons of money. And she proceeded to tell him about how anxious she was and how she was sort of paralyzed by anxiety. Now, in most media interviews these days, that would have just been absorbed and taken outright. But Bill Maher has enough kind of backbone in him and he, in critical thinking. He stopped and he challenges it. What in the world do you have to be anxious about? There are people in the world that are starving and there are people in the world that are suffering in all of these ways. You have all of this that's been given to you. Why would you be anxious? And the only answer she could come up with is she was afraid of the future because of climate change. That was it. He couldn't get anything else out of her. Now, I'm not making fun of the fact that she feels that way, but I'm, I'm pointing out that her culture and the people around her have taught her to think like that. And though she has all of these blessings, and we call blessings, or benefits, she has no fallback. That's what's happening to our teenagers. And when you add fatherlessness to it, which is significant across the United States, we have an epidemic of that where these kids are growing up in homes where they can't trust the adults that are around them. And they're being taught to distrust the country in which they live and to think it's really dark and, and sinister. And they're being taught that there's really no truth and no reality and no basis for them to have any hope or confidence. And they end up, is it any wonder, why are we surprised that they end up suffering and struggling? And some are into gender dysphoria and some, don't we have uh, from time to time young men uh, who walk into malls and worse when they walk into elementary schools and they're loaded with ammunition and, and guns and they, they want to hurt people and they kill people and then they die. And I've looked at that and I have kind of a little theory about that, but I thought, well, how, why? If you want to kill yourself, why don't you just go kill yourself? That seems cynical and hard and cruel, but if you're, gonna, if you're that far, why, why do you have to kill a lot of people when you want to kill yourself at any age? That could be like the adult, the, the man who I think he was in his 50s. Who, who got the hotel room in Las Vegas there uh, two or three years ago, you know, down and shot down with high-powered rifles into a concert and killed a bunch of people before he was killed. And, and there's no motive yet has been discovered for that. This guy had a couple of million dollars in the bank. He, you know, what, what was his problem? But he'd reached an end of this utter hopelessness and detachment and alienation is the fancy word that these, with these young men they get to a point where they feel like there's, there's nobody that loves them, and maybe there isn't. There's no, there's no community, and maybe there isn't. There's no family. There's no structure. There's nowhere they fit, and they've ended up in this sort of nihilistic position where life is meaningless. So they only have one thing they can do to establish meaning, and they go out and they kill people. Because they know in that expression of rage their name is going to be publicized, and people are going to hear them. It's basically like a scream, I am somebody. I matter. It's scary stuff. It is scary stuff. So this idea that, well, we don't believe in God, we don't believe in truth, that's not, just, that's not just philosophic. It has practical, everyday, that's what's happening. And there are a lot of well-meaning Americans, I think, who feel at a loss, who feel the lack of reason, the lack of trust, for the, the cynicism of our society. They're just trying to live their lives, but, and, and they don't know why it's like that. But it's unsettling to them. So we turn to other things. There's not only the mental health crisis epidemic, we have an opioid epidemic. Opioids, okay? Uh, we have uh, a series of uh, an insensitivity to human life of 65 million babies have been lost to abortion since 1973 when Sarah and I were in college right before we got married. 65 million, of course, that goes up every day. And I, I sent a video by one of our sons, our old son, about Christian colleges and other private colleges, smaller colleges that are closing across the United States. And it was a CNBC report. Now, I know CNBC is about finances, so I expect him to talk about that. That's not surprising. But somewhere in that report, that video, segment, they talked about the fact that 
the chief cause of these colleges closing uh, is lack of enrollment. Enrollment's decline. They're enrollment driven. That's where they get their money from tuition. They have fewer students. Why do they have fewer students? And they said, well, because people are having less babies because the economy is bad and they can't get good jobs. I think, okay, maybe that explains a few people's decisions to have not. But abortion, where would those 65 million be going to college today if they were living? Not all of them would not have survived. I mean, I know there's, you know, the process. But how many tens of millions of people and the talent that we've lost and our society is just oblivious to it. We just kind of walk away from it. We've gotten to a point where there's articles written every week about America itself has an identity crisis. That we don't, we don't no longer, we no longer know who we are and what we are. Have you picked up on this? If you watch much news and read, you're seeing it. It tracks back to this. Once, once you give away God, you give away purpose. You give away meaning. Give away a sense of hope and destiny. Anything goes. Might makes right. And you have no way of determining what right is other than power and, and preference. And, you know, you say, well, preference, who's preference? Well, whoever's the might. So you're in a process of, of this kind of decline. I don't know if you've ever seen this painting before, but it goes back to 1893. A Norwegian painter named Edvard Munch is called The Scream. Ever seen it before? It's been used in lots of different ways. And sometimes it's called the primal scream. And it's, it's disturbing to look at it. But it's disturbing because you think, that's, that's not who we are, but that's exactly how these kids feel who walk out and want to kill people, these young men. Or these other ones that have such a sense of loss this, this actress with all of her blessings and benefits, and she's anxious about the future. She has no faith. She has no confidence. She has no understanding of, of what's next. She has no fallback. That's our society. And it's affecting the church. Uh, the German Lutherans, I hate to say this, the German Lutherans met this week, obviously in Germany, that's a surprise, uh, a group of pastors and they had one of their pastors stood up and he spoke and he eventually talked about God. And I'm going to say it this way, that, that God is gay. Now he used a different word that's so much more crude, I'm not even going to say it here. But you get the idea. He's claiming God himself is gay and he went on to make his social justice argument. And the guy got a, got a standing, well, he got an ovation, I was standing, he got an ovation from the pastor's from the German Lutheran church or hearing the man speak when he warped his statement about who God is and about the scripture in such a dreadful, blasphemous, immoral way. So the church itself is caught up into this identity thing. And it's happening even in West Michigan. And so I started my comment about our good pastor who rightly divides the word of truth and who preaches the whole counsel of God. I really appreciate Pastor Archer for that uh, and this church because it's increasingly rare uh, and you have to understand it you, you, the truth separates and the truth isn't always easy to hear but it's truth okay it's reality and God is there he hasn't changed he knows what's going on with all, all this and we're not as, as a society in in the worst situation that any country has ever been or a culture has ever been, but we're in bad shape. We're in really bad shape. You say, well, okay, fine. Or actually, we're with you now. We feel like that guy there. Thanks a lot. Well, let's go home. No, I don't. If, if we were to stop here, which again, that's what's happening in secular society, they stop here. This is what they, this is what's left. So is it, again, are we surprised when people are finding ways to express this meaninglessness when we find utterly nonsensical kinds of things where the where a, a justice of the United States nominee is asked what is a woman and her answer is I'm not a biologist now now they wouldn't even say that because they don't trust science science has been politicized so you can't even do that it's just you know it's, it's socially constructed 
we're living in a nonsensical, non-truth time, and there are ramifications in our people, and we're seeing it work out every day, every day. So it's affecting our kids, and it might have affected some of you in terms of how you feel, but you go back and you say, now wait a minute, as a believer, our identity stands upon a sure foundation. Our identity is something different from all this stuff that we are hearing in our society every day. First of all, for everyone, all people are made in the image of God. Our heritage is important. As I said, our identity, God gave it to us. It's meaningful, but it's not ultimate. Okay? We're made in the image of God. So the worst person you can think of that has ever lived, I don't know, Adolf Hitler. He's gone now, but when he lived, he was made in the image of God. He didn't know that. He didn't embrace that. He rejected that, and look what else he did while he was here. And you can say that today about people of any, any level, any country. The worst are still made in the image of God. I've been privileged to know two men in my life who had significant in-prison ministries. And they would go to, like, Ionia Correctional or someplace like that, and they would go there, and these big, burly guys, murderers, rapists, all kinds of other awful stuff, and share with them who Christ is and see one of those men, some of those men, come to Christ, okay? And would talk about the fact that after that, when they remained faithful and committed and grew in the Lord, they had an unbelievable ministry. They're still in prison. They're probably going to be in prison the rest of their lives. But they had a ministry to other men in particular that you and I could never reach, but they could. Because they're like the Saul that became the Apostle Paul. We had that in Sunday school this morning. But Saul was the guy, Paul was the guy who later wrote about the verse, we're going to show it in a minute, of you're a new creation, all things are become new. Paul understood that. Man, he understood that inside out. And the old, the old burly guys that would hug my friends and talk to them about who Christ is, uh, there's nobody that's unreachable from the Spirit of God. So all people made in the image of God. Now, you can just stop there and uh, you can apply that to, to uh, human trafficking, human slavery. You can apply that to a whole host of issues that we face today where, certainly abortion, where people, human beings' lives are being devalued. You say, no, 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 no. We go back to the beginning. What it says, we're made in the image of God, male and female, created he them, by the way. Okay? God did that on purpose. And he did that because that's the basic structure of not only the family, but eventually the church and of society itself. And if you mess with that, you get a messed up society and a messed up family. You can't live in unreality and irrational. So there's that. Now, you are a believer, I trust. You've gone to the next point and level that you have accepted Christ as your Savior. You have asked him to forgive you of your sins. You, you're like the thief on the cross, or I was, okay? Uh, the other guy, who <laughs> said, hey, remember me in, in paradise. I was thinking about that today, John, in Sunday school, too. Of the two thieves on the cross, one of them responded to the Lord. Of the ten lepers, that story, one of them came back and responded to the Lord. The rest of them took off, hey, thanks, you know, and they're gone. But we never have any record of how they responded spiritually. So if you wonder, back to our Sunday school lesson, the men that were around Saul taking him to Damascus, and after he had the Damascus Road experience, he's blind, and they helped him on into the city, and we were wondering what happened to them. They heard the voice, they didn't understand it, but did any of them get it? Did any of them, I don't know. You'd like to think that some of them did, but based on those other stories of scripture, you think, yeah, probably. Probably one or two or three of them did, who recognized that this is Jesus, we're talking about the Lord, as course than Paul did. But here is, I've been crucified. Now this is Paul writing this. I've been crucified with Christ and, in no, long, and no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's the point. Identity in Christ. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Paul's epistles, he uses the term in Christ or in the Lord or in Christ Jesus, in him, 216 times. In fact, the the phrase in, in Christo, E-N, and then Christo, in Christ, Paul uses that as like a synonym for Christian, or what we later call Christian or Christ follower, Jesus follower. That's how important it is. That if you don't, if you're not, if Christ is not in you and your identity is not in Christ, you're not really, you're not a believer. 
you're not, a, you're not a Christian, a Christ follower. In John's letters, 26 times that kind of phrase is used. So these verses, Scripture is full of this. This is, this is a, uh, 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 not a random sample, but it's, just, it's a selected sample, okay? There are many other verses that talk about, being, like I said, 216 or 26 in John. So there's many other... Every nation and tribe and language of people will hear the gospel. It says that in Revelation. You want to talk about diversity and inclusion and all that stuff we hear about these days and diversity, diversity, diversity. Okay, it's hard, it's hard to have, by the way, e pluribus unum when all you talk about is the pluribus. You forget the unum part. Uh, and you have no basis anymore for the unum. But here, every nation and tribe and language of people of the world, of all times and cultures, will hear the gospel. And some will respond. When you get to heaven... Heaven is going to be the most diversity, diverse place you've ever been. Okay? Moses is going to be there. He's going to be really different from you. He's an Old Testament Jew. He's really different. Paul's going to be there. Abraham Lincoln, I think, is going to be there. There's going to be a lot of people there from all different backgrounds and walks of life. And some of you thought, you made it? <laughs> what do you mean you made it? I had occasion this, to, this week to come across that story again about Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle, of course, one of the great baseball players in his time, New York Yankees, and an unbelievable baseball talent, you know, farm kid from Oklahoma, and the things he could do with the baseball, and especially the home runs and all that, was unbelievable. But in his height of his youth and his career, he used his money and his fame, and he, he just wasted it, squandered it, with illicit liaisons, which resulted in disease problems later, with alcohol and with some drugs, and he hammered himself to the point that in his 50s he ended up with liver disease that they tried to alter, but eventually it's what took his life. And there is a video of Mickey Mantle sitting there. It's one of the most disturbing videos and same time encouraging you ever watch, who's just emaciated. He's just, he's the product of the, the decline of, you know, Nothing like that 25-year-old Yankee that he was like, holy moly, that guy. He's a good-looking guy. He, he had it all. And he sits there, and he says in the video, don't be like me. That's what he says. Don't be like me. I squandered it. I wasted my life. And he says how and why. And he goes on and talks about that. Now, there was another Yankee named Bobby Richardson. And Bobby Richardson left his career eventually, I don't know, 12 or 13 years in the majors. And Bobby Richardson, I heard him speak a couple of times, became a Christian evangelist. And he was extremely well-known around the country, speaking to business groups and so on, uh, because he's the former major leaguer, Bobby Richardson, and friend of Mickey Mantle and whatnot. And he used to do major league baseball chapels, including with the Yankees. And he said, you know, Mickey would come to a lot of those chapels back when he was doing all this bad stuff. And he said, I think what drew him to the chapel and to me is that he was drawn to Christ and Christ in me, and he didn't even know it at that time. And it took the rest of his life, and God was gracious in allowing him to live long enough. But the best part of the story toward the end is Mickey Mantle himself, deathbed confession, confession uh, acceptance of Christ, he... he, he he walked in, Bobby and his wife Betsy walked into the hotel room down there in Arizona, and Mickey said, I'm so glad you come. I'm so excited to tell you that I've accepted Christ as my Savior. And, and Bobby was wanting to make sure, so he went through the salvation plan again, and he said, absolutely. And Betsy said, uh, Mickey, if you stand before God, a holy and righteous God, and he says, why should I let you in heaven? What would you say? And Mickey said, we're talking about God, right? <laughs> She said yes, and he quoted John 3.16. So there is a, a great confidence that Mickey, after all of that, accepted Christ, came to Christ, and that we'll see Mickey Mantle in heaven someday. Wouldn't that be great? Arnold Schwarzenegger is 75. He was recently interviewed by Danny DeVito. Remember Danny? <laughs> uh, from Taxi, Danny, crazy comedian. Danny uh, is 78. Danny says to Arnold, another you know, great hero of my youth, he says, um, Arnold, what's the future for us? And this is two weeks ago. And Arnold said, you know, that reminds me of a question that Howard Stern, the shock jock, asked me, and he quoted all that, where same kind of thing. 
And he said, I saw, I saw a fantasy. And, and he used a, a curse word that obviously I'm not going to use here. It's, it's all a fantasy, and we're never going to see each other again like this. We're six feet under, and that's it. It's all over. It's just, it, is, it sounds good to say, hey, we'll see you in heaven someday. He said, I don't know why people say that. Uh, I've had 15 men that I knew as bodybuilders over the years that were good friends. They're gone now. And it's caused me to kind of rethink all of that, but there's, there's nothing out there. This is it. It is done. That's Arnold Schwarzenegger. No hope. So his essence, his answer to Danny, there's no future for us. You know, we'll live out the rest of our lives and it's, it's done. This, this is it. Now contrast that with Mickey. Okay? Except that Arnold's still living. And as long as Arnold draws breath, there's still hope. And I kind of think Arnold probably already knows the truth. Okay? People make fun of his accent and, you know, bodybuilding days and make off like he's a big dumb guy. He's not dumb. He's very smart. Okay? And he has had exposure to uh, theological ideas and biblical truth and probably believers. I don't know that for sure, but in his life somewhere. I think he probably already knows the truth. But either way, I trust, you know, Lord, send someone into his life. Uh, that can reach him before indeed it is too late. Because he's just given himself over to self and you know, who I am. So when you think about this, every nation, tribe, and language, and people, that there is going to be this tremendous gathering of the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, as it's called in scripture, from everywhere, that our identity is in Christ. And that reinforces that there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, Male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Talk about e pluribus unum, that's even better. It doesn't say that it doesn't matter that you're a boy or a girl. It doesn't say God made a mistake or wished he hadn't done that. Or that you're Jewish or Greek meaning Gentile. or any. No, he just said those things are not ultimate in your life. What's ultimate is your relationship with Christ and whether or not you know him and he abides in you and whether or not you put your sense of yourself in that. And you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's, that's the, uh, I'll call him aggressive, the aggressive apostle Peter. Uh, if there was a tough guy among the disciples, it was probably Peter, okay? He, he had been a rough dude. And, you know, he, I just kind of picture him as sort of that. Uh, this is one reason, by the way, that we don't, we don't believe or affirm Catholic theology, and I say that respectfully. That I saw an article this week where an African-American nun, who's gone now, she passed away, she had helped form the first African-American sisterhood of nuns, da-da-da, and they did a lot of good things, you know, humanitarian things. So guess what? She's now being considered for sainthood. Okay? Uh, Pope John Paul II, remember him? He was, uh, during his time, he was from Poland, and he was there with, with, with Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher from Europe. I mean, those, those three helped bring down the Soviet Union back in the day. And, and the Berlin Wall coming down in 1989. Th those three were enormously influential in that. And John Paul II was conservative, very different from Pope Francis today, who's, let's just say, not conservative. And so they're considering John Paul for sainthood. Really? He was Pope, you know? He doesn't, like, automatically become, no. If you've accepted Christ, you're already a saint, okay? And it says that in Scripture, precious in the sight of God, are the death of his saints. Not the ones who made it through the Catholic Church protocol, but the ones who are in Christ. You already have that identity. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Now, we don't go around and beat our chests and say, look at us, but it does in terms of anxiety, in terms of hope, in terms of security, in terms of all those things that are denied us by secular culture and things around us and the idea... We come back to the scripture, and this is what God says. He hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And therefore, if anyone is in Christ, is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, 
the new is there, or here. Second Corinthians, who wrote Corinthians? Apostle Paul, former Saul, former guy that if he didn't kill Christians, he certainly was instrumental in seeing that it happened, including at right there when Stephen was killed, the first martyr recorded to have been killed. Who would have understood that verse better than Paul? <laughs> that the old is gone, the new is here. I love that verse. There, there is nothing in which we can get ourselves involved. Nothing. Not drugs, not gender confusion, okay? Not outright criminality in terms of murder and a lot of other ugly things I won't list. There's nothing we can get ourselves involved in that we're beyond the reach of the Spirit of God while we have breath. And if we accept Christ as to who Christ is, there it is. Your new creations come, the old is gone, the new is here. That's the identity. That's the identity in Christ. So God gives believers a new identity. You were a sinner, now you're a Christian, a Christ follower. You were lost, now you're found. Remember that feeling of that young man who's walking around with guns? and He's got to have an unbelievable sense of detachment, alienation, loss. No, in this, he's found. You're an enemy? No, you're a friend. You're unrighteous? Yeah, we're still unrighteous, but we're forgiven. Become righteous, imputed righteousness of Christ. You're sick? Now you're healed. You're poor? Now you're rich. You're an orphan? Now you're a child of God, the body of Christ. No matter what your demographic destiny, okay? No matter what your ethnic and national and all those other kinds of things, no matter what you've walked through in life, in Christ, part of the church of God, you look in the mirror, this is another way I borrowed this, I didn't create this, but I thought it was interesting. Another way of thinking about this, you look in the mirror and say, you see a failure. You failure, well, yes, it's accurate, okay. Uh, God sees Jesus. Uh, you look in there and you see a spiritual wreck. God sees a saint. He sees a saint. You see weakness as a speaker, as a messenger, kind of like Moses. I don't have the gift of gab. I, don't, I can't do this, Lord. And he turns out to do it, and, and he did it extremely well. Uh, no, God sees an ambassador for Christ for cause. So there's a new creation. This thing about identity in Christ is far more than philosophic or theology. theological. It is practical. It's, it's in your life. It's who you are every day. It can give you assurance and confidence. I don't care who you are or what your age is today sitting here in this room. So you're hearing something in the church and from the word of God that culture doesn't give you. And if your church is not giving you that, then why come to church? Why waste the time? You say, well, sometimes this challenges me and convicts me. Good, that's what it's supposed to. Sometimes it encourages me and builds me up. Good, that's what it's supposed to. God is God. He is righteous and holy and just and he's there. By the way, there, I said this on a radio thing last night. In, in, in the Middle East, in this Islam, there is a great and fearful God they call Allah. That's just the Arabic word for God. But Allah is definitionally different from the God of the Bible. Lots of characteristics one and one. But one of the things that, that's missing, for the most part, they have this fearful, transcendent, sovereign, great God. Okay, They don't have the Heavenly Father. They have no concept of Heavenly Father. Which the scripture talks about saying that's another manifestation of the character and attitude and the love and, and the extension of who God is in us. Our heavenly father. You can approach him as a father. Not, he's God. Yeah, he's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's ontological. He's holy. He's just, you know, but he's also here. Schaefer again. Schaefer talked about Eastern religions and said they do they talk a lot about transcendent gods, these big, scary, out-there gods, but they have no concept of an imminent God. And then there are Western religions that give you this sort of imminent little g God that can't fix anything, do anything, including back to the Greeks and Romans, but they don't have a concept of a transcendent God. God is both. The God of the Bible is both. So that's who we are. Our identity in Christ is forever the source of our purpose and hope. And, you know, the John 15, that famous passage about the vine Remain in me as I also remain in you to the day you die. As far as I know after that. <laughs> you 
You're in heaven with the Lord. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So our identity in Christ is not about who we are. It's not about what we do. Meaning it's not something that we achieve. It's something we receive. It's about who Christ is in us. So our identity in Christ. So last verse, except it's not a verse. It's classic hymn lyrics, right? Uh, some of you know that song. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. Boy, you should just like jump up and run out of here like this. No matter what you face, no matter what your experience, if you know Christ, he's in you, you are locked in. And you have an identity that is unshakable, and a foundation that is sure, and all the politics and all the noise out there, it's that, it's politics and noise that we need to be compassionate about and we need to speak to and witness to, but it isn't truth. This is truth. Because God is truth and God is love and he loves you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we can look into your word and see not just ourselves, but to see you. And to see you uh, and your will for us and your blessings upon us. We thank you for the, for the Lord Jesus Christ who uh, lived and lives and that we may live in him and he in us. Father, we pray for every person sitting here. Uh, if there's one that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, we pray that they could come to that understanding today and come to a personal relationship with you. And for those who do, we ask, Lord, a renewed sense of the blessing and encouragement on the other capital H hope uh, that that is to be in Christ. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Amen.